0: Today I want to start with one important question. And the question is, what defines you? What defines you? Your ethnicity, your family history, your childhood maybe, your appearance, maybe your income. What do you feel defines you? Who and what you are? So much of our conflict in the world today has to do with things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago that nobody can let go of. Maybe you have someone like this in your family where you just know every time you get together as a big family, you know this issue is coming up. You just know it's coming up. You're just waiting for the issue to come up because you've got an aunt or a cousin or an uncle or somebody who just has this thing that they just won't let go. They just won't let it go. It defines them, this former conflict, this former bitterness. And in many of the world's conflicts today, things go back thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It runs almost too deep for it ever to be resolved in this lifetime. Scripture suggests there's some issues that won't be resolved till Jesus comes back because they run that deep. The conflict in the Middle East is very much like that when you actually begin to study it and you begin to discover the reasons for the animosity on both sides, you realize how foolish it is to say, why don't you come to a nice hotel, we'll talk for a week and fix it. You realize how incredibly ridiculous that suggestion is when you trace how far back the struggle goes, the bitterness goes, the animosity goes on both sides. And as we jump into Ephesians 2 to continue our study, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church and he's addressing an issue that had arisen between Jewish and Gentile believers in the Ephesian church. So you've got Jewish believers, these guys used to be Jews, but they've believed in Jesus, and then you have Gentiles, people who are not Jews, and they've believed in Jesus, and these two cultures and backgrounds are colliding in the Ephesian church. They were experiencing the reality of two cultures coming together that had nothing to do with each other one minute, and then the next minute they're told, we're family. Praise Jesus. Isn't this awesome? And it created some problems. It was very, very awkward for everybody. And and we still kind of see that today in the church in minor areas. You see it in the church in areas like music. Somebody says, I love Jesus, but what the heck is that sound coming out of the speakers in your church? I don't understand what's going on. That's not the way I do it. And you have this clash of cultures and preferences colliding. The classic example I thought of is maybe you come from a church background where everybody hugs. Church backgrounds, everybody hugs. And then other people come from a church background where they're like, whoa, calm down, perv. What's going on? If you come from a youth group background, then you know what I'm talking about. Youth group backgrounds, you always had you, the Holy Spirit, and then a girl. You always had room for the Holy Spirit right there in the middle. You couldn't hug, you side hug if you come from a church background, you know what I'm talking about, you side hug. Maximum contact, shoulder to shoulder. And then you got other people that are like, oh, brother, mwah, Somebody watching? So uh, there's these clashes of cultures and preferences that happen in churches all the time. And this was happening in the Ephesian church. And so to understand the verses we'll be studying today, we need to understand a little bit about the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so we're going to take a look at a brief history of Israel to get some proper perspective. And we we pick things up after the flood. Noah and his family have survived the flood. Uh, His family, his extended family, have repopulated the earth the Tower of Babel ha- has happened. Men have tried to build this great tower to reach up to the heavens. Men are incredibly brilliant. God says, you guys are completely ignoring me. I'm sick of it. I'm not going to put up with it. So he basically creates different languages so that people can't understand each other, and they scatter all over the world and become different cultures, different ethnic groups. Multiple generations pass, and, and what happens is God literally dies out of the consciousness of people. From all accounts, so many generations have passed that that God is non-existent in culture. Nobody really talks about him anymore. He's completely erased. And then out of the blue, God shows up to one man. And he's a guy living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is basically a suburb of Babylon. If you know anything about the Bible, you know Babylon is a bad place in the Bible. Babylon is always a picture of complete sinfulness. Egypt is always a picture of the world and being lost without God, but Babylon's a whole nother notch above. Babylon is like happily lost without Jesus, right? That's what Babylon is. So he's hanging out in the suburbs, and he's a guy named Abram. And out of the blue, God shows up Speaks to Abram, reveals himself to Abram. We've talked about this before in some of our earlier Ephesian studies that we have free will, but God is also free to choose some people. If you want an example of that, you got to take a look at Abram because this guy wasn't doing anything special. God showed up and revealed himself to Abram. Nobody handed him a tract and said, Watch out, Halloween is dangerous. Read about Jesus didn't happen. God just showed up and revealed himself to Abram. We have the story of God choosing a man named Abram. Choosing a man named Abram. Out of the blue he shows up and this is what he says. This is uh, Genesis chapter 12. He says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How many of you know that's a good day when God just shows up? You're just out there with your goats. God shows up and says, guess what? I'm going to make you a great nation. Sweet! That's awesome. And it just happens. God just reveals himself to Abram, chooses him, and loves him. Chooses him for a relationship. It's the same thing that God has done for every single one of us, isn't it? We would never have found him had he not worked circumstances out in our life to reveal himself to us, to call us to a relationship with him. When he called us, it was a good day. It was a good day. And just like Abram, we've been called out from where we are. As, as God is revealing himself to Abram, he is simultaneously saying, pack up your stuff and move. Move where? To a place that would become known as the promised land, Canaan. So simultaneous, in conjunction with the revelation of God, comes the command, leave, get out of where you are. And that's a geographic situation in the context of Abram, but in our lives, it's a spiritual application. God calls you, he reveals you, and he says, but there's some stuff you need to walk away from, and that comes hand in hand with the revelation of Jesus. God says, listen, I've called you, I've saved you, I've pulled you out of death and darkness, so you need to leave darkness. You need to walk out of darkness. I'm calling you into light, just as he called Abraham. Abram, I'm sorry, to move and begin your journey to a better place. And just like Abram, we have a glorious promised future. A glorious promised future in the presence of God forever. We have the same promise. But I want to make sure that you underline this phrase. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Is that Genesis verses on your outline? Are they written out on your outline? No? If you want to flip there in your Bible, it's real easy. Genesis is the first book. Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3. I want to encourage you to underline the phrase, I will bless those who bless you, it's verse three, and I will curse him who curses you. Because that is an eternal promise that God made to Abram. What that means is there's no expiration date on that promise. God says, you, your people, your nation, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. It's an eternal promise. This is very interesting because I really believe this promise still exists today. You know, historically, the rise of the United States of America through the 20th century is, is incredible. It's absolutely incredible when you think that they were a colony of England, basically. Got their independence and became the most powerful nation in the world. And there are many biblical scholars who would suggest that despite all the economic things that can be pointed out, I'm talking about when America was doing well. I'll get to right now. But Israel the situation that led up to that was most likely their relationship with It wasn't due to anything else ultimately. There's a lot of biblical scholars who point out that since Israel was formed as a nation again in the late 40s, the United States had always voted with Israel on every United Nations vote, automatically voted however Israel voted, always had stood in military alignment with the nation of Israel. Anybody threatened Israel, it was known you're threatening the United States of America america is blessed i'll give you another example take a look at europe europe's collapsing it's a financial disaster countries are in default countries are in default which country is the economic bedrock of europe right now it's germany germany has the strongest economy by a mile and i know what you're going to say you're going to say um hitler holocaust um Small factor, did you know that no country has worked harder to be a blessing to Israel since World War II than Germany because of the enormous guilt they have over the Holocaust? To this day, they still give Israel gifts like nuclear submarines as gifts. They supply them with weapons, they supply them with economic aid, they do everything they can to help Israel and they vote with Israel automatically at every United Nations vote, only those two countries. Germany is blessed and that's why. The United States has started tanking economically. It's not a coincidence that for the first time since the formation of Israel as a nation, we have a president in office in the United States who is not in favor of automatically voting with Israel. He's chided Israel publicly in press conferences several times, and he's pulled back and said, we're not gonna automatically support you if you go and attack Iran right now. It's not gonna happen. And coinciding with that has begun this era of troubles in the United States in the economic sense. It's very, very interesting. If you wanna lose yourself for a few hours on the internet, go look at that. But God says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. Here's the bottom line I want you to understand. You do not wanna line up on the other side of God's promises. You don't wanna do that. If you ever find yourself in a conversation if you ever find yourself in a debate, you ever have a chance to vote on anything, I would line up with God's promises. He will bless those who bless Israel. He will curse those who curse Israel. That's a straight-up biblical promise from God. You can take that to the bank. Let's go back to Abram. Later on, as, as part of God's continued work in his life, the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a great multitude, This is a name he got before he had his first kid. Very ironic, you know, it must have been very awkward. He's about 100 years old, and God changes his name to Father of a Great Multitude. He's got no kids. What did God tell you today in your quiet time? It's not important. it's not important. It's not important at all, you know. Uh, My name's Abraham. Really? No, did you, I'm sorry, I thought you said Abraham. Yeah, yeah, it's Abraham. As in father of a great multitude, yeah. <clears throat> it must have been very, very awkward for Abraham to share that news with people having no kids. You know, it would be like me giving myself the nickname Six Pack. It's just not gonna work, right? It's just not gonna happen. So <clears throat> Abraham makes a disastrous decision. Abraham chooses to have two wives. How many of you know that's one too many? That's one too many. He has two wives. Two wives. And this creates some major, major problems because culturally, only one son is going to receive the inheritance, the family name, and spiritually, all the promises that were given to Abraham. It ends up in a situation where each wife produces a kid. Very awkward, very awkward. And this is where the entire Jewish-Muslim conflict comes from. We and the Jews believe that his wife Sarah produced a son named Isaac, and that Isaac was the rightful heir of all of God's promises. He also had a concubine. If you don't know what that is, look it up. He had a concubine named Hagar, servant girl, and um, His wife, in a moment of great character, really wanted a kid, said, hey, why don't you go sleep with Hagar and we'll see if that works. Surprisingly, Abraham wasn't like, well, no, I couldn't possibly. I'm sure he was very uh, cooperative with that suggestion. And uh, produces a child named Ishmael. After Ishmael, Isaac is born. And so we would say, well, the child of promise is Isaac because that is the child that was produced through God's original plan, which was through his wife. Sarah. But the Muslims would say, no, 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 no. Ishmael from Hagar's side is the child of promise. It's Ishmael. You're the illegitimate ones. And this is literally where the entire situation starts in the Jewish-Muslim conflict. Later on, it gets even more awkward because God says to Moses, I want to give you an outward mark that you are my special chosen people. And God comes up with circumcision. And Moses circumcises his household and one side of the family. Isaac's side doesn't circumcise Ishmael's side. So now there's even a physical marking defining them as two very, very different groups. And this gulf just keeps growing. It becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And Abraham's family grows to become the nation of Israel and the Jews. And before the cross, The Israelites were God's chosen special people. God only dealt with them. Other peoples were welcome to join the nation of Israel, but they were kind of tagalongs. They weren't really allowed to intermarry. They weren't allowed to participate in very much of what was going on at all. When God was with the Israelites, they were unstoppable. God was with them when they chose to obey him. And when they did, I can't imagine the rumors that must have swept across the Middle East because God would show up on a regular basis and work miracles in battle on their behalf to the point that nations lining up against them started to realize we're not lining up against the Israelites, we're lining up against God. That was the reputation that Israel enjoyed when they chose to walk with God. They were a supernatural people. But over time, the Israelites began to idolize their status as God's special people on the earth, meaning that they began to care more about their status as special than they did about their relationship with God. They began to feel that they were special and they somehow deserved God's favor more than others. When you think about it, every Jewish child would grow up and every story that's in the Old Testament, Jews are the good guys, Gentiles were the bad guys. There's even a phrase they would use in their culture as kind of like a, an inside joke, and the inside joke would be, why did God make Gentiles people who aren't Jews? Because he needs kindling for hell. A little harsh, right? little harsh, and that was the attitude that began to creep in to their thinking. And it's tragic. It's tragic because in Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, which every good Jewish male at the time would have had memorized. It says this about Israel. God is speaking, and he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But why? Because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God chose Israel because they were the least. They were the least. God chose them because he said, I need to get some glory out of what I'm gonna do on the earth. How can I do that? I know, I will choose the least likely candidate and I'll work through them. That's sort of God's MO. So when he needs a people, he chose the least of the people on the earth. And that was Abram and the nation of Israel. That's why God did it. He, he didn't choose them because they were special. He chose them because they were the most unspecial people on earth. And he chose to love them to reveal his glory through them. That's why God chose the nation of Israel. You may be thinking, ah, man, that, that's really tragic. It's really arrogant. But we're going to find out that we can be a lot more like them than we would like to admit. You see again and again and again through the Old Testament, all the great heroes of the Old Testament, most of them have epic moral failures in their life. Moses, David, Samson, and it goes on and on and on. And many of the the heroes of the Old Testament have these huge moral failures in their lives. But God keeps working through them because he found glory in working through people who were the least of these In Exodus 19.6, God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God's plan was to take this group of people, starting with Abram, who were the least of the peoples on earth, turn them into a nation of ministers, a nation of prophets, a nation of priests, and use them to reveal the glory of God and speak of the glory of God across the earth to evangelize the earth, to speak of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And they completely failed at that task, completely failed. May we as the church never be guilty of the same thing. May we never be guilty of the same thing. May we never start believing that we somehow deserved salvation more than other people, that we had it coming because we didn't outside of the grace of Jesus. May remember that we've been saved by grace. We've been called, and we've been given the same mission that God gave the nation of Israel. In 1 Peter 2.9, the New Testament, Peter tells us that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous Light. He's given us the same mission he gave them in Exodus. And like I said, you might be thinking, they're so stubborn, how could the Jews miss that? How could Israel miss that? But what they fell into is they fell into the traps of a works-based faith. What that means is they began to say, I wanna figure out the rules, then I wanna keep the rules, and that way I'll be saved. And you would think, but it's a much better deal to be saved by grace. Because it depends on Jesus and not on you. But the truth is we're so egotistical as people. We would still choose the works-based faith a lot of the time. Because it puts all the power back in our hands. We love the idea that, you know, there is this part that I play in it. There is this thing that I did. Because if we can say that, then there's people who don't do that. And this makes us better than them. Because we do it and they don't. We love the idea that we are somehow in control of our salvation because if we are the determining factor in whether or not we're saved, if we can take that credit, we are God. We are making ourselves God. We are becoming our own savior. So when you have religions that are based on works, the appeal of it is you can be your own savior. If you do this, if you're a good person, if you care about the planet, if you do this and this and this, you'll be saved. Translation, you can save yourself. It's the most popular religious philosophy in the world. It drives pretty much all of the world's religions outside of Christianity. All of the spiritual belief systems. You can save yourself. And we hear that, and our first instinct isn't to go, I'd rather have grace through Jesus. We go, yeah, that sounds good. I can save myself. When I mess up, I can just make up for it. I'll be my own judge. That's way better. And we love the idea because there's always people we can point to and say, I'm, I'm better than them. Christianity says Jesus did it all. And so the nation of Israel and the Jews had fallen into this trap of breaking down a relationship with God into a set of rules instead and following the rules and thinking that they were better at it than anybody else. This is on your outline. It's too easy for us to be just like Israel and trade relationship for rules. Trade relationship for rules. And so with all this background, now we dive into Ephesians 2 verse 11. So now you understand the cultural class you have coming. You have this group of Jews who were raised Jewish who've come to believe in Jesus colliding with these unclean Gentiles. These guys have never hung out before. They got nothing in common. They live in different areas of the city. They don't want anything to do with each other. And now they're at summer camp together. It's awkward. It's really, really awkward. And so we're going to jump in and read what Paul has to say. Paul says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision," by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by the hands. Let let me explain this to you, because that's a complicated sentence. Basically, you have the Jews who are following all the rules, and they were calling themselves the circumcision. We're doing it right. And they would call the Gentiles uncircumcised. It's a derogatory term coming from the Jews. And so the Jews were calling the Gentiles unqualified, illegitimate. Not true believers is what they were doing. Paul says, remember that you guys, some of you who were once Gentiles in the flesh, you weren't a part of this. You weren't circumcised. You weren't a part of God's special chosen people. Circumcision is also representative of what life was like before Jesus came. It's an outward marking on the body because being saved before Jesus came, was all about outward works. It was about doing enough good things, keeping the rules enough to stay clean. And when you violated God's standards, there would have to be punishment. And so what they would do is they would sacrifice an animal for their sins. So basically, the animal would die instead of them. But here's what began to happen. There would basically be an endless flow. It's very morbid, but it's morbid for a reason. There would be an endless flow of blood coming from the temple because they could never make enough sacrifices to cover up for all the ways we mess up. You could never be good enough. I mean, you can imagine if you're a guy, you go, you make a sacrifice, you walk out the temple, there's a good looking woman. All right, I just gotta turn around and go right back into the temple. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on, nonstop. And the whole idea is God was trying to display for several thousand years, God is trying to make the point, look, you can try to be good enough. My standard, my moral standard is perfection. The Old Testament is a picture, it's an example, it's a literal scientific exercise in what it looks like when you try to be good enough on your own. Read it, somebody's already tried it for thousands of years, it didn't work. It didn't satisfy God. You could never make enough sacrifices. You would have to have made a sacrifice for everything you ever did wrong, every wrong thought, and you would have to somehow pull off a sacrifice and then immediately die so that you didn't sin, then die before you had a chance to make a sacrifice because even one imperfection might as well be a Mount Everest of sins when the standard is perfection. That's what the Old Testament is. It's a giant display of the folly of trying to save yourself and be good enough yourself. God says it's already been done. We've already tried this. Read about it. It's in there. You can check it out for yourself. So they were trapped in this endless cycle of sinning until Jesus came into the world. But the problem is that this human vessel, which the Bible calls the flesh, could just never, ever be perfect. In Colossians, Paul describes the effect of what Jesus has done on the cross. You see, Jesus has moved the identifying mark of being a believer from the flesh to the spirit. In Colossians 2, 11, it says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So salvation through Jesus involves the cutting off of just not a part of the flesh, but when Jesus comes into your life, your old self dies. The picture is Jesus went into the grave. His human body died. His human body died. His new life, when Jesus was raised, was a completely different body. This was his eternal, glorified body. This was his new body. And so when we receive Jesus, the old dies. Scripture says the new has come. We have a new mind. We have the mind of Christ. We have a new nature. We are a new creation, Scripture says. It's a parallel to what Jesus went through. Our old nature stays in the grave just as Jesus' human body was done with in the grave. and We receive a new nature, a new body. It's a spiritual circumcision that takes place. The Gentile believers in Ephesus had grown up knowing Jews always called Gentiles things like illegitimate and said things like, you don't really belong to God, our people really belong to God. So let's pick it up. We're going to start in verse 11 again. So Paul says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's speaking to the Gentile believers and he's saying, remember, he said, just remember that even though they shouldn't be calling you illegitimate now, remember that you were once excluded. You were once aliens. Before Jesus came, you were outside of the family of God. Before Jesus came, that was all true. You were illegitimate. When the temple was built in Old Testament times by Solomon, they basically had this inner court area called the Holy of Holies, and that is where the presence of God would reside over the Ark of the Covenant, the actual presence of God, like take a peek and die presence of God in the Holy of Holies, separated by this giant thick curtain. And then the next closest place only the priest could go. Then the next closest place, only the Jewish men could go. Then the next closest place, only the Jewish women and children could go. And then like on the outer, outer courts, the Gentiles could go. And they were so far away, they probably didn't even know where they were. They were so distant from the presence of God. The only person, in fact, who went into the Holy of Holies was a priest who went in once a year. They'd tie bells around his waist and a rope around his waist. Here's why. Because this priest would go in once a year and pray for God to forgive the sins of the entire nation. Sort of a blanket prayer. But this priest would have to wash himself, become ceremonially clean, make sure that all his sins were covered before he went into the presence of God. Because if he went in not being perfectly clean at that moment, he'd just die from coming into contact with the presence of God. And the people on the other side of the curtain would hear the bells hit the ground And they'd know to pull the rope, pull the body out of there, because nobody's going to go in and get the body, right? And that's that's what they did. That's how it worked. Once a year, that is how holy, how separate the presence of God was from even the most qualified people in the world. It was that lethal. It was that serious. It was that obvious that our sins had separated us from God. Paul says this in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The work of Christ on the cross broke down every wall of division between Jews and God, Gentiles and God, and Jews and Gentiles. Now they are with Christ. Now they are part of God's chosen people. Now they share in the covenants of promise. Now they have hope with God in the, wor- <clears throat> in the world, excuse me. At the moment of Christ's death, as many of you know, the giant curtain in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer court, tore in two by the power of God, God rips it open. And this is God's declaration to the world. Anybody who seeks me can come find me now because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Anyone who seeks me can come and find me. There's no more division. That happened the moment Jesus died on the cross. Before the cross and what Jesus did, all of God's covenants, all the promises he made in the Old Testament were only for Israel. They were only for Israel. Through the cross, we've been included in the covenants of promise that were formerly only for Israel. One of the the pictures that scripture uses for Israel a lot is an olive tree. When you see an olive tree, it's pretty much always a picture of Israel. And the Bible tells us that we as the Gentiles have been grafted in to the olive tree. It's a horticultural term where they can actually take a limb from another tree or plant and graft it into another tree and it will actually start growing with that tree and become a part of that tree. The picture it says is we've been grafted into that olive tree. We've become a part of God's special people. And Paul uses this analogy because throughout history, there have been so-called Christians who have heard all this and started to think to themselves, so we're the new Jews, right? So we're the new Jews. So God is done with the nation of Israel, right? All those promises are for us. um, And the Jews killed Jesus, so I think God's kind of done with the Jews. And this sort of thinking, even in the church, has led to an enormous amount of anti-Semitism over the decades, over the centuries, over the millennia. Because we've misunderstood what's really happened. God hasn't pulled out one tree and put in another. We've been grafted in. Paul says this in Romans eleven sixteen. 16. Listen to this. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, And with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying there are some that have rejected Christ that have been broken off the tree and they're not gonna be redeemed. But scripture describes a time after the rapture when God will gather the Jewish people for himself again and save them as a people and reveal himself to them and cause them to see who Jesus was when he was on the earth. It says in scripture that they will weep for him as one weeps over a firstborn son there's going to be this moment when God just opens their eyes and they realize Jesus was the Messiah we were waiting for. They're going to weep. They're going to weep over that. But God's going to pull them back because they're still his special chosen people. Israel only exists today because they're God's chosen people. If you want to study the history, you cannot come up with any conclusion other than that God's with them because they shouldn't exist. They're surrounded on every side by people who want to kill them every day, every moment of the day. And yet they're still there. They're still there, right? It's incredible when you actually begin to break down things like the Second World War. This was a plan by one man to eradicate the Jews. And what was the end result of that that God did? Israel became a country again only because of what happened in World War II. United Nations passed a declaration in the late 40s making Israel a nation. And Israel came back from all over the world to become a nation again. They're the only nation that's existed for over 2,000 years without a country, and they're still there. It's an incredible, incredible study if you look into it, but you can't come to any other conclusion than that, hey, God is still with them, because they got no business existing unless God is with them. No business at all unless God is with them. So what an amazing realization for us that these Old Testament promises are now ours as well. So how, how do you use this revelation? Do you start going through the Old Testament and saying, this one's for me, this one's for me, this one's for me? I just want to share a couple of quick things that are good for you to know. Take a verse like Exodus 3.8. It says, so I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. This is not a, a promise that you can claim. You can't say, you know what, God's given me a promise that I'm going to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's like, was you going to save on foods? Tell me where you're going. Here's why you can't claim it. That was a specific promise for a specific time, and it's been fulfilled. It was talking about the land of Canaan, the promised land. You can read that and get the heart of God, but you can't claim that promise because it's already been claimed. It's already been accomplished. But there are incredible promises, like Jeremiah 29, 11, through 13. You guys all know it. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You have Joshua 1 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Those are promises that we can now claim. We can now hold as our own. They apply to us, and so I want to encourage you, when you read those in your Bible, underline them, put them on your bathroom mirror, pray them, claim them. God will keep them for you in your life. As we spoke about last week, we were headed for judgment and wrath and destruction until Jesus stepped in, and Jesus paid the ultimate price to save us in and through his blood. When you understand what the blood of Jesus has done for us, it changes the way you see everything. It changes your entire perspective on life. And I believe Jesus never wants us to forget that it took his blood for us to be saved. That's why he created communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And every time we take communion, we're reminded that it took the blood of Jesus for us to be saved. That's why I never wanna separate God's love for us from what it cost him to love us. That shouldn't become a footnote. Jesus wants you to understand he bled for you, he died for you. The blood of Jesus is everything to us. It's our freedom, it's our healing, it's our redemption, it's our forgiveness, it's everything. And when you're confronted with the blood of Jesus, some questions begin to fall away. Because you can't be confronted with the blood of Jesus and ask the question, does Jesus really love me? What do you think? What do you think? Jesus says, take, take communion. What does communion stand for? The fact that I bled for you, I was broken for you. I died for you. So yeah, I love you. Yeah, I love you. And it's time for us to be done with that question because that was answered emphatically on the cross through the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus says you never have to wonder about that again. The blood of Jesus says you don't need to wonder if you're really forgiven. You don't need to wonder if God's taking care of that sin. Take communion and you're reminded he's done it. He's really done it. It is finished through the blood of Jesus. And if you're weirded out by all this talk about the blood of Jesus. Please understand, for for those of us who've been saved, we're only saved through the blood of Jesus. We were dead and now we're alive because of the blood of Jesus. And if it weirds you out, uh, I need you to know we still have to talk about it because it is our freedom and it's the one thing we can never, ever, ever forget. Because when you remember the blood, it is the cure for being casual about your faith. It is the cure for being casual about your commitment to God. It is the cure for postponing, responding to God when God says we need to work on this in your life and you say maybe another day. When you're confronted with the blood of Jesus, you realize no, it's, it's today, it's today. The blood of Jesus is everything for those of us who have been saved by it. Verse 13, Paul says, we, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Ephesus, the Jews had grown up with the Old Testament and they knew all the laws and all the traditions and they didn't want to give them up. So they were saying, no, no, here's the deal. The Gentiles need to get circumcised and follow all the Jewish customs because it's in the Bible and, well, Jesus was Jewish. The Gentiles are saying, we're saved by grace. It's a spiritual circumcision. Spiritual circumcision. We're 110% sure. Put the knife down. So they had kind of a, a differing viewpoint on interpreting the issues. And Paul brokers peace in this explosive situation by revealing something amazing in verse 14. Speaking of Jesus, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So Jesus has made peace between the broken body, the flesh, and the law of God. He's made peace between those two things on the cross. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. And the picture there again is the temple. He's saying, imagining that he's preaching from the Holy of Holies, that he came to preach peace to those who were near, the Jews, the most sacred priests, and he came to preach peace to those who were afar off, people who were in the outer courts who had been considered unclean. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. This is how Paul brokers peace in this cultural clash. Paul says, guys, the new model for all of us is Jesus. Jesus is the new model. He's the way, he's the example. We're both welcome in Christ as we are. We both have access through the Father, through one spirit. The model isn't your cultural background and traditions. The model is Jesus, the model is Jesus. Not only is he the model, but Jesus is our new identity. We're not Jews and Gentiles anymore, we're Christians. That's the new identity, we're Christians. And if you've been brought near to him through the cross, And I've been brought near to him through the cross. Then guess what? We've been brought near to each other through the cross. You have more in common with your kingdom countrymen than you do your earthly countrymen. Way more in common. Way more in common. How were we brought near? By the blood of Christ. Put this on your outline. Your identity is no longer tied to the blood that flows through your veins. It's tied to the blood that flowed from his. That's why we're here today. Jesus has been revealed to me. He's been revealed to you, or he's being revealed to you right now. So in Jesus, in himself, he has made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles. Even more amazingly, he's made peace between a sinless God and the sinner. Incredible, the cultural gulf that Jesus has managed to cross through the cross. In verse 19, Paul tells us we're citizens of the household of God. As we realize this profound truth, we begin treating each other the way that Christ has treated us. And We no longer define ourselves by our hobbies, our ethnicity, the color of our skin, our personal history. We start defining ourselves in Christ. And when we do that, we as the church become a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The incredible truth that Paul preached almost 2,000 years ago is that we are all equal under God. When you or I pray, the same God is listening. You have the same access to God's truth in his word as I do, the same access. The same Holy Spirit that's been given to me has been given to you. And Through Jesus, <clears throat> we all have direct access to the Father. Direct access. No intermediaries, no middlemen, no hierarchy, no ladder to climb. We're all equal under God. We're all equal under God. The incredible truth is that there's nothing special about me. There's no access to God that I have that you don't have. Nothing. There's no hierarchy. There's just those who seek God will find him. That's it, complete equality under Jesus, complete equality under his kingdom. So I wanna ask you again today, what defines you? What defines you? Your personal history, your ethnicity, color of your skin, your income, your family history, your past hurts, what defines you? If it's anything less than Jesus, let it be Jesus. Let it be Jesus. You're a child of God first and foremost. As we have an opportunity to take communion as we worship in a few minutes, we're gonna be reminded that our identity is child of God. Child of God. That's who we are. The blood of Jesus covers everything else. And we're all equal under the blood of Christ. And my heart and my desire is that every single one of us would walk out of here today saying, I know who I am. I'm a child of God. That's who I am, more than anything else. And there's no greater title I could ever be given than child of God.